This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 35, and in today's show, we contemplate the podcast's zero share ratings as we discuss and analyze Sidney Lumet's 1976 satirical drama, Network, starring William Holden, Peter Finch, Faye Dunaway, and Robert Duvall. This is Harry, your prophet denouncing humanity's hypocrisy. And I'm the other guy who does the show. My name is Jeff. <laughs> Welcome back, man. First, yeah. first, I just want to say this. Like, I take full blame for our Zero Share podcast as we still have to, to put any of this out publicly. But it will happen soon. But I do prophesize we will still have a Zero Share rating afterwards. I don't imagine it's going to be much higher than a Zero Share. No. Anyways, how are you doing, man? Good, man. It's good to be back on the show. I've been neglecting my movie watching over the summer. So yeah, it's good to be back and diving into some new material. Let's talk about Network, this 1976 movie, satirical drama, which I'm pretty sure we could classify it. Maybe it could just be a drama. Is it a satire or is it not? That's kind of a strange thing. And I'll already drop a bit of trivia before I ask you if you have any memories about it. Is George Clooney, for some reason, this art house wannabe, he, for some strange reason, screened this for a bunch of students, this movie, which he had nothing to do with. He has no family member, no Rosemary Clooney or anything like that dealing with this movie. I don't know, it might be a, a favorite of his, or he was just, you know, had nothing to do and he wanted to kill some time on a weekend. I don't know where he screened it. There's a bunch of students. And he was shocked from his perspective that students who were watching this, the younger generation, did not consider this a satire. Now, hmm. interestingly enough, that the filmmakers do not consider it a satire. Do you consider it a satire? Yeah, that's a tough line to draw. I mean, uh, my first reaction was to say, yes, it must be, but hard to say. I mean, there's a couple of items to dig into there. Like one, you know, I don't know what the climate was in 1970. 76 as far as what was on TV. I mean, this was, you know, several years before the debut of like the 24-hour cable news networks. So you just would have had your three major networks and their sort of nightly news programs. So if this was, I don't know, it's hard to say. It's played pretty straight. Satires are usually have a bit more humor uh, to them. And this is pretty serious. So, ah, yeah, I guess I could say like, there's a... It, it's, it's a fine it's, line. It's walking it? a line. Yeah, it is walking a line. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that throughout the movie and the end for sure. But let's go into the, your memories here. Have you even heard of this movie before? Have you seen any clips of it before? Did you know anything of this before? I think you said last time you hadn't seen it. It, but were you even aware of it? That's correct. Yeah, I hadn't seen it. Was I aware of it only peripherally because of the one iconic line, right? Mad as hell and so forth. Like, that's a pretty famous line. So that line, like, I'm aware of this movie. So I, I'm did pretty you know sure. that came from this movie? Though. I did know that. Yeah. You did know Because uh, my dad's talked about this film in the past. He's a big movie buff. And yeah, especially for the 70s, you know, he's seen every movie from the 70s 100 times. So I've heard him sort of reference this movie. When you mentioned that we were going to do this. I thought that this was the movie, you know, with that line. And I had a general sense that it was about the news. And like, basically what I thought it was about was about some crazy dude doing the news. 
and like he was holding the news hostage or something like that and was just losing his mind on the air. That's what I thought the movie was about, which it isn't really, right? That was all that I knew. Yeah, likewise, I knew of this movie and it's kind of funny. I had always mistaken this movie, like this movie was, I'll, I'll get into the trivia in a bit. I had always thought this movie won the Oscar and had beaten Star Wars for Best Picture when I was young. That's how okay. I kind of knew of this movie. Now, there's two falsehoods in that. One, this movie did not win best picture at all and two it was not even in the same year as star wars the movie that beat star wars for best picture was annie hall annie hall yeah and the movie that beat this picture for best picture was rocky oh okay yes so rocky beat this movie for best picture and i always had thought just because you know networks kind of standing critics even though i never really heard of a direct review of network they always reference network Mm -hmm. and and of course that line and you see that clip being played all the time in movie shows or review shows or Oscar replays and things like that every year, at least for a while, I remember this, always seeing something about Network and that line from Peter Finch. So I had always thought this was the move that took the statue away from Star Wars and I had a big grudge against this movie. I was, I was fucking pissed. I never wanted to see had anything to do with fucking Network. At what point in your life did you realize that you were completely off about that? About 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Really? No, maybe a few years ago. I hadn't bothered, you know, I don't go on the internet saying which movie won Oscars and this stuff. It was just something in the back of my mind when I thought when I was a kid. So a few years ago, I had done the research and I had finally read somewhere that Annie Hall had beaten Star Wars. This is when episode seven was coming back. And I wrote an article talking about Lucas and the history of Star Wars and mentioned Annie Hall. So that's when I first figured it out. And I hadn't seen Network at all until last year. Mm was on TV. I had caught it. Might as well watch this thing. It didn't beat Star Wars. I will not watch Annie Hall, by the fuck you, Annie Hall. You can go take a donkey dump on your own fucking head somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, Annie Hall, I find it to be a very overrated film, for sure. I mean, say, you know, did Star Wars deserve to win that year or not? I mean, I guess you could have that argument, but... What argument? uh, What the fuck? Get the fuck out of here, man. I mean, mean, the Academy Awards are kind of a... Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, but... You know, whatever, right? Still. It deserved a win, but that's, that's getting off track here. So that's, I watched Network last year on TV and I had kept this one in my, the back of my head as a little nugget to do for the podcast eventually. So it was on my list. Like I got a list for our podcast. I'm always like 10 movies ahead in what I want to do. And then I might change out the order based on something happening in pop culture or based on your picks. I may have to reorder things around. So Network has kind of shuffled its way down the ladder and then finally picked it for this one. So so that's that. So. Any other thoughts, or do you want me to get right into the plot summary here? Let's get into the summary. I mean, I've got lots of thoughts, but yeah, best for the discussion. So tune that dial in, buddy. All right. Welcome to UBS Evening News Division. Trying to simply tell news, being responsible to the public. God damn it. Keep losing money. Aging news anchorman Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, is given two weeks notice. Two weeks by his manager and longtime friend Max Schumacher, played by William Holden, because ratings are dipping. The next time Beale is on the air, he threatens to deer hunter himself on live TV, prompting his immediate firing by UBS top man Frank Hackett, played by Robert Duvall. 
Beale convinces Schumacher to let him back on the air to apologize to the public. Schumacher agrees, but oh wait, Beale starts to be honest about life and all of its bullshit. Beale keeps swearing on live TV and talking nonsense, but Schumacher allows it to go all Batman and Robin instead of stopping it, as he is aware that Hackett intends on shutting the news division down anyways. Schumacher is then fired for allowing Beale back on the air, but just hold on. Network programming department lead Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway, informs everyone that news division ratings are now spiking. Forget the news. According to research, the news division ratings have been declining for six years. But watch out. Here comes Howard Beale. He got us a 30 share in six minutes. You green-blooded inhuman. Christensen convinces Hackett to give Beale his own show because they cannot find Stanley Spadowski, and Schumacher is kept on as well, and soon the Howard Beale show is on the air. On the side, Christensen is getting more horny as rating shares are increasing, so she and Schumacher start to have an affair. Schumacher can put that Spanish fly away as Howard Beale, Howard Stearns it, and ratings continue to spike. Beale is a truther, and anti-establishment, exactly what the public is craving. There are no moral limits, craziness is not a disease, and everyone should be mad as hell because they shouldn't take it anymore. Schumacher eventually ends the fair with Christensen, who is just too fanatical and job-devoted. Sex just ain't as pleasant when the focus is on network share and when your partner's pillow talk is on developing a new terrorist reality show. Beale then soon discovers that a foreign company will be buying the conglomerate that owns UBS and protests this on a show, encouraging viewers to also protest and send letters to the White House. UBS brass is now in panic mode. We created a monster. How do we control this? Hackett then takes Beale to the conglomerate chairman himself, Arthur Otisberg Jensen played by Ned Beatty. Jensen informs Beale that there are in fact three lights, not four. The world is a business that requires ecological dollar balance. There are no people or nations, no millions of peaches, just one holistic system of systems, which is dollars and corporations. That is the natural order of things, and resistance is indeed futile. Impacted by Jensen's discussion, Beale then starts to tone down his rants on his show and speaks about the dehumanization of society, and ratings start to decline. Jensen likes what Beale is now preaching on the show and will not allow Beale to be fired, so Hackett and Christensen decide to use the terrorist group working with Christensen to assassinate Beale live on TV. Beale is killed, putting an end to the Howard Beale show, but network share increases. It must have. And all is well. The end. So, Jeff, any thoughts on that synopsis here and what you would expect out of a movie when you hear that? That Millions of Peaches bit was a pretty deep cut there, dude. I like that. That's good. (laughs) It feels like that movie could have been made yesterday and you'd say, "Mm, yeah, you know, maybe a little too close to home, too much like real life, you know. So that's kind of so it's almost frightening to to be able to say that. You definitely reminded me of a couple of plot points that I had sort of not forgotten about. I just watched the movie yesterday, but hadn't really been thinking about when you asked me about is this a satire or not? And I think there are satirical elements here that I hadn't thought of. So it's it certainly sounds like there's a like there's a lot of depth, a lot of a lot going on here. If that's my synopsis, then I am very intrigued to see what is under the surface here. When I wrote that, I mean, I had a lot of fun writing that one. And yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a movie that is relatable to even today's events. And maybe it's been relatable forever. Ever since, as Jensen, we'll find out Jensen later, he reports that this has been the way since humanity has climbed out of the sludge. Yeah. Right? Like when Picard was standing there with Q... In all good things, when they left, that first cell that came out, that was, you know, ecological dollar balance was the first word of humanity. (laughs) They just missed it. So, Yeah, we evolved that before opposable thumbs. (laughs) Yes. 
All right. I'll lay out some trivia here. So this movie was partially inspired by the real-life suicide of Christine Chabok, if I pronounced that correctly, in 1974. She shot herself on the Suncoast Digest broadcast show. I think Rebecca Hall, she recently did a, I believe it's a TV movie, based on this suicide. I don't know what it's called, but I remember just seeing that just recently uh, on the internet when I was doing my research. This movie was released by MGM on November 27th, 1976. Budget was $3.8 million, and it made almost $24 million domestically. No numbers on international take or anything like that, but considering the time, I think that was a pretty decent profit for a movie such as this, especially since I think Jaws and other movies like that have come out kind of started to change and transform what people wanted to see in the theater and this still made some decent money here so that was pretty good this of course probably to no surprise to you was an oscar darling peter finch and faye dunaway won for best actor and actress and what may surprise you is beatrice straight who's played max's wife in the movie also won for best supporting actress wasn't she in like one scene yeah and i was gonna lay that out in a bit of a trivia later so we'll talk about that later but she won for supporting actress and it also won for best original screenplay done by Patty Chapsky. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Oscar noms also went out to William Holden, Ned Beatty. It also was nominated for Best Cinematography, Film Editing, Best Picture, and Best Director. Now let's talk about Sidney Lumet himself. He had an early career after, I think he served in the war in World War II, and immediately came back and he was developing and directing off-Broadway productions, and he ended up being a very well-respected TV director. I uh, started directing TV in the 50s, he directed hundreds of episodes of series that are named Danger, Mama, and another show called You Are There. Not here, but You Are There. <laughs> <laughs> so with respect to film, he has directed almost 50 films over the span of his career. And aside from this movie, he is most known for directing The Excellent 12 Angry Men, The Fugitive Kind, Serpico, The Original Murder on the Orient Express, and Dog Day Afternoon. And he has other notable film works as well. Just out of curiosity, Jeff, any of those movies you've seen that I just mentioned? Yeah, I've seen Dog Day Afternoon. That's uh, Pacino, I believe, right? And I think I've seen Murder on the Orient Express. I don't know if this is the version of it that I've seen or not. It's the one with Sean Connery. In. Yeah, Sean Connery and Albert Finney, I think, was Hercule Poirot in that one, if I recall. I, I yeah, Larry I, David to be Poirot. Yeah, if he could act a little bit better, then I, I'd like to see sort of a Curb Your Enthusiasm version of Murder on the Orient <laughs> Express. That'd be fucking awesome, uh, Actually, that would be really funny. That would probably work uh, quite well. Larry would just stare the everyone down until the guy would just give up. That's what he'd do. Well, could you imagine the neuroses that would manifest itself on a train sort of stranded on the tracks in the snow in that situation? The, the things that would bubble to the surface if you're that kind of a person, that'd be comedy gold, I think, would be great. Uh, I think that's a pitch we need to send to Larry himself. Hopefully he's listening whenever we publish this thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. I'm sure he's listening. Going back to Met, his last movie, was 2007's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which unfortunately I saw and uh, I thought it was pretty terrible. He passed away in 2011 at the age of 86, and during his career, he was known as an actor's director, and he focused heavily on rehearsals and preparation that got him to get through shoots very quickly. That was kind of his MO, and the heavy focus on the rehearsals is praised by many of the actors who have participated in his, fi in his films as they were really able to get into the weeds of their characters. So... In today's movie making and other directors, they don't put that kind of emphasis, and he did. And mm -hmm. that was what he was really known for. So the screenwriter, Paddy Chavsky, he also came from TV. And I'll get into that maybe at the end of the podcast. 
And he did many, many television shows and stage plays. But again, most of his work, just like Numet, was in the 50s and 60s. He is the first screenwriter, however, to win three Oscars for scripts that he wrote himself as original screenplays, mm. including this one. Many big Hollywood stars were rumored to be wanted for the parts in this movie, and they either turned it down or it just didn't work out. These names, such as Gene Hackman, James Stewart, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, Diane Keaton, Natalie Wood, Glenn Ford, George C. Scott, and Vanessa Redgrave. And that's just to name a few. There were many more big name artists out there who either tried to get into this movie to work with Lumet or were not interested because of the subject matter. Mm. So this movie is also on AFI's list of best 100 movies ever made. And as of 2007, it was sitting at number 64. And in the year 2000, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And both writer Gills of America, I didn't know there was two of them, but apparently there's two of them, as this one as one of the 10 greatest screenplays ever written in the history of cinema. So hmm. based on that, Jeff, thoughts just on the trivia. Anything stand out for you? kind of even the rundown of all those actors there I, I mean you know you said some names there i could have seen pretty much any one of those names in this movie and not to say anything you know bad about who actually is in it i thought the performances were very good top to bottom but yeah you could i mean could see you could see gene hackman in there you, you could see just about any of those names in this movie that's interesting that that was the talent that was sort of circling this film not really surprised to learn about the writer clearly ha you know has a talent for dialogue for writing dialogue for sure Sure, I've got some other thoughts on that, which we can dig into later there. But I'm a little surprised at the high, high accolades for that. But again, we kind of get into that later, for so, sure. So one other thing I wanted to mention, and I forgot to write this down, but I think I remember it clearly. That might be a first in my life. But uh, <laughs> do you know the difference between a Nielsen rating and a share? I definitely do not. So a rating is based on the number of potential households that have a TV yeah. that are watching the show versus okay. a share is networks are able to clue in on how many households have their TVs on and are actually watching the specific program. And that's what designates a share. So I believe a share is more valuable for advertisement and marketing for other companies to zero in on shows. So say mm. like football is mean maybe a bad example because it's always popular, but you could look at something like say a Seinfeld when it was on. Mm -hmm. People would have TVs in their house, but then when the TV is on, the majority of the populace will be watching sign. And that's kind of right. how you add the difference between a rating and a share. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. I had to look mm. that up. You always only hear about Nielsen points, really? And right. I don't really, yeah. hear, I don't really hear a lot of talk about share anymore, but I guess it's still prevalent uh, behind the scenes. People still talk about share. So, so let's get into the film. So the movie opens with a narration that this is a story about anchorman Howard Beale, and they immediately mention the ratings of audience share. He's getting fired. He's getting his notice for because of the, his age and the declining ratings of the news division and the program that he's running or he that he's on because he's the anchorman going out for a drink right now and getting this news with his manager Max Schumacher, played by William Holden. They're having a good time, but then it cuts to a depressing scene in a bar where Howard threatens to kill himself on air before his last day. Like, he'll work the full two weeks, and he's warning Max, I'm just going to shoot myself on my last day. And I guess Max jokes around with him, oh, if you do that, you're going to get a 50 share for sure. So at this point, Max is, of course, joking. But what did you think of the immediate, this is within the first two minutes of the movie, literally. Mm -hmm. So wh mm -hmm. what did you think immediately when they started to talk about share, the focuses on this, did you immediately 
immediately get a sense of what this movie is going to be about? I think so. I mean, not knowing exactly what a share is. I mean, it's so obvious what they're talking about, which is people tuning in. I did like that scene in the bar. I thought it was like the opening scene where they're kind of on the street and they're just sort of yelling at each other because they're hammered. Didn't resonate with me. I thought they were, uh, it felt like they were hamming it up a little bit, but the quieter scene in the bar, you know, feels like it's setting the stage somewhat because, I mean, I definitely got the idea that he's he was serious about what he was saying and he was going to shoot himself on the air. It was a good opener. I wasn't really sure what to make of the voiceover to open it. You know, I actually like a good voiceover in a, in a movie. It has a storybook quality to it. It's hard to describe. I, I like how that can sort of overlay almost a fairy tale quality to it, which I like. In this case, I was sort of mixed. But yeah, again, I thought the bar scene was pretty strong. I agree 100%. I 100% am aligned with you when you say on the street when they're telling that stupid story that Max is telling Howard. I thought they were hamming it up. I thought it was overacting there. Yeah. It wasn't believable. But when you get to the bar, I thought, you know, the tables turned and I liked that scene. Felt mm. uh, a lot more, you know, truthful, realistic. So let's move on. So it cuts to the office the next day. And as it does this, and I liked this aspect, I love how movies, I don't know if you kind of notice the difference because movies have opening credits and the title cards mm. and the names and they are overlaid as the scene is progressing. But here, I think it actually is continuing for a while and you're actually getting some life in the office. It's not just kind of like nature scenes or uh, the, the protagonist is driving his car through the woods or something like that. Here, it's a purposeful scene, and the title card is running through. I love that when they do that in movies. I don't know about you, or do you find that distracting? Because I think that's what they did here. They're in the office. Mm. People are starting to have discussions, getting ready for the show. You're getting a sense of how shows are being prepped for that day. Yeah. And it's not just wasteful scenes, in my opinion. Do you like it when it's not filler? I do like it when it's not filler. I mean, it depends on the movie, and depends on the tone that the movie's trying to set, because there are title sequences out out there that I like quite a bit. I, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but that do contribute to the movie. But and that office also felt very authentic. That bullpen felt authentic. It was almost like the Daily Planet set from uh, yeah, super. Uh, Richard Donner's Superman, right? Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I made that note, and it looked good. I mean, I looked like a real office. It kind of made sense. It made sense to me to do it that way. We get now, as the title card is continuing, and I agree with you, I love how Mumet here is kind of very slowly going over the people in the AV room behind the scenes, getting ready for the news broadcast, or mm -hmm. people in the office doing the papers. Like, he's picked a couple of interesting angles that get you right into the nitty-gritty of people playing around with the dials, the sound equalizer bars, messing with papers, talking to people. I love these scenes. And we immediately go right into where Howard is starting his new show. And mm -hmm. he immediately mentions he's going to kill himself in two weeks' time. And I found it funny. Nobody notices. Because this is, yeah, I like that. Yeah, nobody noticed because it's, you know, just run of the mill. He's supposed to be just talking about the news. So it's not meant for a joke that nobody's noticing. But one lady finally does alerts everybody else and they yank Howard off live TV eventually but the people at home can even see the commotion before the live feed cuts out so he's gone through with his threat did you like these opening scenes here like I said, I thought it was played well where, like, nobody even, nobody even fucking noticed that he announced that he was going to blow his brains out on the live on the air next, like, a week or two weeks from now or whatever it was. 
that worked really well. Nobody gave a shit. That's that one guy that tells a story of, you know, the news is so boring even to the people who are producing it. Nobody cares. That sets us up well here. Uh, I don't know that I had had too much else to go on there, except that perhaps, like you mentioned it earlier that you were worried a bit in the opening scene there where they're kind of felt like they were hamming it up in that drunk scene on the sidewalk. We were worried about it, dialogue sort of taking on a, or the performances taking on a stage play quality. And I felt some of that in these opening scenes as well. Yeah, I partially agree with that too, as we talked about that first scene on the street. Here, there's not too much of that once you get into the office. But I think later on in the office, that's the case. Let's just move on. We'll get a little bit further into the movie here. So next we see the fallout. So James Bond Jr., a.k.a. Robert Duvall, comes strutting in in his tux to, based on this fallout. And you learn that the news division is $33 million in deficit. There's a history of bad blood between uh, Hackett and Max. And we also soon later meet Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway, and she's reviewing some footage on terrorism, which they can use for the network because she's not related to news. She's related to cable programming. And when they're talking, she's using the word and the guy who's also pitching it is sensationalism. And and these are the kind of words that, you know, is what I think Patty Chavsky, the screenwriter, is trying to get at right off the get-go here is, Extreme sensationalism versus real news. So Diana, she's so focused. She doesn't even bother looking at anybody else. She's just looking for, this is Diana we're talking about in this pitch meeting. She just cares about share. How shocking is it? And how can I get it on TV? So what did you think of the introduction to Hackett, played by Robert Duvall, Diana, played by Faye Dunaway, and these scenes here? This is really dark and cynical, isn't it? I mean, you know, they're they're looking at the footage of this bank robbery shot by the terrorists themselves. You know, to what end? I mean, presumably for their own publicity to bring attention to their cause. And yeah, she's just looking at monetizing it and turning it into a series. Like this is one of the parts where I was, you know, it seems to be satirical, but it's played totally straight. So, you know, I'm not sure. And that's it was almost like she didn't like she understood. Was there a uh, did she understand the difference between reality and and fiction? Like she wanted to create a series by getting this footage and create a a show. But like this is real footage. So, yeah, I know it's right off the beginning, which tells you something about her. Yeah. And I don't really want to give my thoughts away, but I, I found some of this jarring, not because someone in the media wants to kind of sensationalize something for the purpose of profit and entertainment. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. She doesn't, I don't know if she's kind of crazy. Like, does she even know the difference between a real news, something you would broadcast on the news like CNN? Oh, this is a terrorist yeah. attack? Or, but now it's kind of weird. Now they want to use these people, hire them. We get a brief scene of her gathering their her team in her office to talk yeah. about the reality terrorism TV show yeah. with these people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very strange. Very strange. And we get more into her life and her outlook on the world as we go. And it seems consistent with that as we go later. But I thought Faye Dunaway was terrific. I mean, in the opening scene, she's very striking. She's very, she commands that whole set when she's speaking. I I thought she did a terrific job. I was like Robert Duvall as well. You know, he doesn't have a whole lot to do here, but he's also a good, he's a good on-screen presence. I just like him. So Yeah, I mean, uh, you can't say nothing bad about Robert Duvall. He's an amazing actor and he always has, you know, I wish I'd seen more of his work, but I like him in this time. Like, you know, he became a very fatherly figure Mm -hmm. later in his career. Yes. But I really enjoyed, he is probably one of my more favorite performances in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, was Duvall playing Hackett. He was just lethal, I mean, ruthless. 
ruthless. Yeah. And I loved it. And it's real because he is accountable to his bosses, the conglomerate, the shareholders. And he says something here in the scene. When you see him next, he says this about the news division. I think he says this to Max. Everything needs to be accountable to network. Mm-hmm. And he says yeah. that exact line. And I thought that yeah. was very interesting. Like, have to be accountable yeah. to network. So yeah. we move on. And I think Schumacher's getting his balls kicked here too by Hackett. But Howard convinces Max to let him stay on the air, go on the next day one last time to say goodbye. And then we get the bullshit, bullshit, bullshit scenes. And then he becomes a rating bonanza that evening, that one night. It becomes it goes to 30 share. And Diana just loves it and convinces Hackett to make Howard into a star. And she calls him a prophet of the times, denouncing hypocrisy of all time. So Jeff, just a couple of things. What did you think of these scenes? Is it believable? What did you think of Howard's kind of rant with the bullshit, bullshit, bullshit? He'll have other rants too. But I, th- mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you first. I thought we were the prophets denouncing the hypocrisy of our times. I thought that was what we do. That is what we do. Yeah, that is what we do. So, uh, so we're son of a bitch, stole our shit. That's the bullshit here. Yeah, we're yeah, we're definitely late. I, we're not quite as angry. Well, you might be. I think I am. But you are. I, yeah. I like to think I am. So. I definitely saw a lot of you in Howard Beale. Um <laughs> <laughs> it is all bullshit. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, I mean, I was wondering if he, I mean, it was like he was sort of starting to buy into his own anger. Like it was started to, it started to feed itself after a while. And the, maybe the issue with that is we don't really know how angry he really was before this. I mean, he was getting canned. So fine. That was something to be angry about. And perhaps he's also angry that the news seems to be less and less relevant. And for, you know, an old newsman that would probably be disconcerting that you know you might take that a little bit personally but i also don't know how much of that would have been rooted in the time the late 70s now i mean this movie's before my time so i I don't have the experience of the 70s personally but there was a recession yeah there i mean you have to consider even though this is past but the sting of vietnam is still there. That's why anything yeah. anti-establishment will hit a huge note because there's also a recession happening and right. inflation's going through the roof. Yeah. Nobody trusts banks. They still don't, even today. Right. But uh, you can imagine what the populace was going through at that time. And that's probably one of the reasons why the writer, Chavsky, I'm going to call him Pad Pad from now on. For Pad the rest Pad. Of Pad Pad. P-Dog. P-Dog. <laughs> P-Money. P-Money. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why he made this, right? I mean, he's coming from that angle. Anything anti-establishment will hit a massive note with the audience during the early to mid-70s. And that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I I guess, you know, we don't actually see much of Beale's show at this point, like before they, you know, turn him into the profit, profit with the sets and all of that stuff. And we don't see a whole lot of him on TV. In fact, it often cuts away to the production booths yes. when he's on the air. Right? So we see what's going on behind the scenes there, which I thought was an interesting choice. Again, because I thought the movie was actually about him and the show, and it's not at all. Like, he's almost a peripheral character, really. I mean, it's about... And that's kind of funny. You bring it up. So, Peter Finch, his bulk of his work, he was, again, was an actor very prolific in the 50s and 60s. He died very shortly after this movie. In fact, here's a piece of trivia. He was not even there to accept the Oscar. He had died 
He was the right. first. Win an Oscar after his passing. So I wanted to ask you one thing about Howard Beale himself. At this point, and I guess we can talk about it for the based on the rest of the movie, do you think that he is just a truther? And he's just, as you had mentioned, is an aging anchorman. He's kind of upset, frustrated, looking at the end of his life and twilight years and, you know, mad because he's being he was being fired. So he kind of goes on this tirade. Or do you really think he's crazy? I mean, we don't really know, do we? I, I think that the movie doesn't tell us that we don't get much more of Peter Finch. I, you know, if I just had to say, had to guess, I would say that he does go a little bit crazy. I didn't necessarily like the treatment of his character. I felt it was a bit inconsistent Mm -hmm. because they start him off as a guy who's just telling the truth because, hey, why the fuck not? I'm being fired. So fuck you guys off trading me this long. I'm going to say what I want. And this is the truth. Yeah. Understandable. Later, they show him having visions or him pretending to have visions. There's that scene of him in bed. He's kind of talking to himself. And then he says, oh, I had these visions of God. And then later when, you know, we can talk about it later when Jensen's talking to him, it's almost like he's thinking he's a vision almost. Yeah, right. Right. So do you think he's crazy or what's happening? Yeah. Well, I didn't get any dishonesty out of him or or any sense that he was playing a part. Hemming it up maybe later on a bit, but I felt that he believed what was, you know, with the vision. Like, I, I don't think he was lying or acting there. I think we're talking about that vision. You brought it up. I interpreted that as, you know, when he's telling everybody about it, it sounds like he's telling them about a vision that he had. When, you know, from watching the scene and listening to him talk about it, it felt to me like, you know, he said, like, I heard this voice. And people are like, oh, you're hearing voices, the voice of God. And I felt that he was he was hearing his own voice because we all kind of talk to ourselves inside our own heads all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Where we kind of bounce different ideas off your own brain and you have a dialogue with yourself. We all do it. I felt like that's what was happening here. Like I woke up in the night, you know, that voice in his head, which was his own voice himself talking to him. And then he says, I, you know, this is what I heard. He was not really translating it in that way. So everybody else is thinking, oh, man, he's either lost it or he's really leaning into the role. But later, so there might have been that. Yeah, it might have been that. But then, you know, I've seen this scene a couple of times on YouTube because I was preparing for the podcast is the Jensen speech to him. And yeah. he specifically tells Jensen later that he he saw the face of God. Yeah, right. He said you did. Yeah, you did see it. You did hear or see the face of God or whatever. But Jensen saying that to him when he says that, I mean, we can talk about the scene when we get to it some more. But I think when Jensen says it, because doesn't Beale say something like, I saw the face of God and Beatty's like, or Jensen's like, yeah, you did. But in the sense of like, you saw the truth. This is the truth. Maybe. But I'm, but yeah, just, I'm just playing it based on the way it was written. But you're right. There's, yeah. there's subtext there. Well, let's move on so we can get to some of the other parts of the movie. So VP Duvall does a turncoat here, and he's pissed. He's mad as hell, even before other people are mad as hell. And he wants to fire the whole lot of them, and then finds out that the ratings have spiked based on Beale's latest tirade. And now he says, ratings trump all. Fuck all you guys. He's got to get a show. And Max is now allowed to stay on because his supervisor, Ruddy, convinced Hackett, and he wants him. And this kind of is a weird plot point because there's that meeting with Ruddy and Schumacher, and he says, I want you to spy on Hackett for me. And then it kind of went nowhere. Yeah, I don't know if you recall that scene. And even Ruddy dies later in the movie, just kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. notice that. Yeah, so it went know. nowhere. Yeah, yeah it, went, it went nowhere. And I was just saying, okay, so I was getting interesting. I thought we'd get more, some more of the interpolitics of network. Mm-hmm. And we see what drives people behind the scenes. And the bosses get some of the interpolitics. But I was hoping for a bit more. 
So the narrator then comes back with the VO about how the Howard Beale show goes on the air. He now has his own dedicated show. It starts with a 14 share rating. But after a few episodes, the novelty starts to wear off. So And the ratings start to slightly dip or are only holding steady. So Diana then visits Max late one night in his office and she gives the hint that she's, you know, kind of available sexually, but says she's really here to only help develop the Howard Beale show and we need to up the showmanship qualities here. Let's talk about Diana and Faye Dunaway. Like, I found that she really can't sit still. She's all over the map. She's very aggressive, talking a mile a minute. She's very progressive because women were not consistently portrayed as someone as confident as Diana Christensen here. So Faye Dunaway does a good job here. But what did you think of her performance? Is this over the top? Is this an excellent performance? Is this progressive? Hmm. And look at the time frame from then to now. Yeah, this is a bit to unpack. I thought it was a very good performance. I don't think she was over the top. She might have been pushing it a little bit, but I thought she, again, I thought she was very powerful, very commanding on uh, in every scene. Nobody was taking the scenes away from her. You know, she no. was the centerpiece. And I, I thought she did a, an excellent job here. Now, the character, I mean, she described herself as being, I don't know if she said too masculine or just being masculine in general. And for the 70s, for sure, you know, in order to get ahead, probably you would have need, you would need to think that you need to be masculine. Like if you're a woman and you're focused on your career and you wanted to get ahead, then you would probably have thought that I got to be more like a man in order to make it in a man's world, which was probably factual. And if you want to put that in the lens, 40 years later, it's probably still true. Maybe a little bit less so, but maybe not all that much less so. I mean, it's still very much man's world. And when women do the same things as men in the context of the business world in an office, right? So if a woman's aggressive, like if a man's aggressive in the office, like he's seen as being assertive, strong, powerful, seen as positive. If a woman's aggressive in the office, or then she's seen as being shrill, she's being a bitch. And it's always viewed as being negative. Not always, but these are the things that can kind of happen. So interesting that they wrote that this character existed in the 70s. You know, this isn't a period piece that was written today. Like, this is from the 70s. So to have a character like this is very progressive. It and is, I thought she played it. Yeah. yeah. And I thought she played it well. Like, she didn't overdo it. They weren't really leaning. They weren't leaning into, hey, look at how progressive we are. Because it's not like she's necessarily seen as a sympathetic character. She's not, in fact. I mean, she's the symbol of what's wrong with the network, with the media. So there's some real, there's some nuance, there's some good layers there that they don't make any judgments on her. And I don't think they really invite us to make judgments upon her okay, so either. That, that, that's interesting. I agree with you 100% for the time. This is a very progressive role and bravo for writing it. And Faye Dunaway does a admirable job. My only issue here is that she's constantly playing at an emotional state of an 11, out mm. of, you know, in comparison to, say, a six or a seven where there's a bit of dynamic layers that are shown here. She only has one layer. And Patty Chavsky and Sidney Lumet told her that, and she, I think Faye, in my research, Faye Dunaway had said that she had, this is one of her concerns, but playing this character, even though she was very happy how it all turned out in the end, very proud of that role and still is today, and she should be, but they said that she has to play her soulless. She has no soul. And that goes mm. to your point of her being as part of one of the trappings of the media world here. You are playing this piece on the 
chessboard and none of the pieces have a soul. And that's mm-hmm. kind of their point. And it just happened to be a woman in this role. And it is progressive. But I just didn't like the fact that she's completely consistent all the way through. And I guess that's kind of the point. I just kind of found it tiresome that she didn't kind of bring it down a gear. Like she was just yeah. always there. And I remember your complaint about, we were talking about Star Trek. Funny, funny enough, on our one year anniversary show. Yeah when you were talking about Kira and your problem with that character was that you felt that she was always at a certain emotional level, always angry, always yelling. And I disagreed with that. And I found that's probably true in the first few episodes, but over the course of the series, I found that there was layers there. Now that we're talking about a movie in two hours, there's no sequels, there's no nothing else. But I found to me, it's a legitimate complaint about this character of Diana is that she's always at that level. And then let's move on because immediately after this, they coldly talk about it. Let's just go have an affair. They kind of say mm-hmm. that in the office. Yeah. She made herself available and he goes, sure, why not? This is what Max says. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of just, you know, agree. Let's do it. Let's go for dinner. And Diana warns over dinner that she's lousy in the sack and talking about how, you know, she's not good in relationships and all of that stuff. And I found this kind of interesting. Is that consistent? for you or is that telling you something else it felt that it was consistent yeah, so there's a couple things. So I felt that was perfectly consistent with her character to be as forward and truthful as she was. Like, yeah, I'm a terrible lay. You know, I get aroused easy. I, you know, I pop quick and that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She's saying, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. Yeah. I pop uh, quick. Yeah. And which we see later on. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll to, get that. to that. But it's interesting when we're talking about, you know, a movie that's talking about the news media and, and the cynicism around it all of these characters they're very upfront and forward there's a lot of honesty that in their words like they're not lying to each other they say what's on their mind they don't beat around the bush they just tell it like it is and well there's no time time is money and having sex doesn't lead to increased network share but maybe diana was in the wrong business and she should have been in the porn business instead i mean yeah she could do a lot of 30 second shorts that's uh, <laughs> that's for sure that's um, generous my friend. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's interesting that these people who are involved in the news, like they're talking about, you know, committing adultery, doing something very deceitful and underhanded, but they're talking about it so openly and forwardly. So that's an interesting layer to me. They're just telling it how it is. Like, this is how we feel and this is what we're going to do, as if they're just sort of reporting coldly on the facts of the situation, as if they're reporting the news. Mm. So that feels cold. It's like, eh, you know, people wouldn't actually talk that way, but that also subverts expectations there. They're not dancing around it. They're not building any sexual chemistry or tension or anything like that that they would normally do in a movie. It's just like, yep, this is what we're going to do. And they go out for dinner and then, it, it, you know, it's a thing. So, but that being said, so I thought it was sort of consistent with the characters. That being said, it didn't feel all that authentic to me because I don't think that that's, it didn't feel representative of reality, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you for the most part, but I don't really don't think that was a, it was just interesting to see how cold it was, but I agree with you. Maybe this is just how, you know, they're in a rush, rush world, dog eat dog world. There's no time. So there's no time for dancing around. And, you know, it's like James Bond and Goldeneye. No more foreplay, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So we get now the next day. Max is back in his office and he's starting to contemplate taking the Howard Beale show off the air because he just has reservations about the network using and manipulating Howard and Howard confronts him in the office. 
And he's saying he's now renewed. He's like connected to all living things. I expected him to break out into Yoda's speech in The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. But after the speech Howard gives Max, he thinks. And, uh, you know, I didn't find that very interesting. I found it kind of a little bit of overacting here. And this is not the first time Howard Beale will, will faint. And again, leading me to, you know, this is kind of where it was leading me to say, is he crazy? Like, I really don't know what's going on here. And it's, it's a little off for me. And it's not mm-hmm. working with the character of Howard Beale a little bit. But he stays at Max. Let's just talk about these scenes as a whole. And I'll tell you where we'll, we'll cut off and then you can jump in. So he stays at Max's house that night after he faints in the middle the night he leaves and then the next morning we cut to Hackett losing his shit because that evening he has to go on the air and no one knows where he is and and he tells Max he's fired again and then Howard Peel arrives that evening at the station all soaking wet and this is where the famous scene comes in and they just let him on the air I love how it doesn't matter don't get into wardrobe don't chain get out of your wet clothes just go straight to stage mm-hmm. get him on stage and they cut the news feed about OPEC and oil prices because this is more important sensationalism and Howard Beale starts his about the recession, violence, guns, nobody is safe. The air is unfit to breathe, is what he says. The food is unfit to eat. TV tells us to ignore the problems and the world is getting smaller. Just, and he wants the world to leave the average person alone uh, who is surrounded by their materialistic things that TV is telling them to buy. But mm-hmm. Howard Beale doesn't want to leave the average person alone. He says, I want the average person to get mad. This is where the mad is hell. I'm not going to take it anymore line comes in. And mm-hmm. it's a brilliant performance in these scenes by Peter Finch here. I love this performance in this particular scene, but I want to get your immediate thoughts, not just from the scene and his acting lead up to it, you know, when he had his discussion with Max in the office and faints and and what he was talking about. Well, yeah, this is, I mean, a very good performance. I agree in these scenes, real raw from Peter Finch. It felt, you know, he certainly, he turned it up to 11 himself in this scene without overacting. And then I I guess this is where you would have to start to make the argument that he's crazy because he faints and which we'll see repeated later on. And he's just walking around in the rain, you know, like he's, he's basically had a revelation or believes he has. Now, when we get into, you know, when he goes on and he's getting into his mad as hell thing, again, if you were to look today, if this were to happen today, as we record this in 2017, and you get some guy rolling onto TV mad about OPEC, oil prices, crime, wars, you know, whatever. Well, we're also living in the age of social media. So we're, that person's a dime a dozen. Well, that person's a dime a dozen, for sure. Then, this but was the shock- rage, Yeah, this, well, I, I mean, I assume this would have been shocking, but this didn't actually happen on TV. And you're right, this kind of thing's a dime a dozen. And you could tune in, you could you can listen to some nutbag conspiracy theorist shouting at the heavens and Or whatever. listen to this podcast. Or listen to the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Where we uh, <laughs> shout at the heavens, especially when a movie sucks, then we're, we're really shouting at the heavens. There is no greater affront to humanity than a bad movie. Well, my point was, is that depending on the time, like you're either establishment or anti-establishment. And now the establishment, there is no, the establishment now is who knows the fuck the establishment is. So everybody can, would say they're anti-establishment. I mean, for example, Fox News is the most watched cable news in history. Well, not in, I don't know, in history, but currently Fox News is what people watch. And they're the ones who generally shout and stoke anger and talk conspiracy and say, get your heads out of the sand, everybody. And anger at that level is toxic and it feeds on itself and it eats itself and breeds more and more anger and gets people riled up. Now, if we go back to the 70s where, you know, the Cold War's running hot, Vietnam is a fresh wound, violent crime is high, especially in urban areas, places like New York City where this takes place, you know, high oil prices, high inflation. You know, we talked about all this stuff. At that point, 
whose side are we on? Like, are we on the side of the people who this guy is screaming at the heavens? Like, look at all the shit. And, you know, we got to say, we're not going to take it anymore. So it was interesting for me to watch that because, like, I follow a lot of, like, I watch news. I love following politics. It's been a hobby of mine just to watch the circus that a politics always is, not just now, but always is, to see on what side you can fall depending on what is going on in the in the world, right? So that was what I found most interesting about this scene is depending on what lens you want to put on it, you kind of fall on either end because they are trying to sensationalize it. And that's not, I would suggest, what you should be doing is trying to sensationalize it. You shouldn't be trying to make me angry when you're showing me the news. You just show me the news. If I want to get angry about it, that's up to me. Yeah, for um, sure. That's, I mean, this is a, so much to unpack here and I, I'm not really sure. I'm so, I get so caught up in what my own feelings are when I watch it that I have trouble seeing what the movie's trying to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, there's no right or wrong way of interpreting this. Well, um, what I noticed it beyond this performance in the fact that, yes, this is now entertainment. It is not news. And we talked about the word sensationalism is the fact that he brought up all these topics that are completely relevant today. OPEC and oil. Recession. We just got out of a recession. Inflation is increasing. Violence is still here, even though there's been improvements. Still a very violent, like we're better than third world countries, but you can look at the violence overseas with terrorism the problems in third world countries, but also the violence, you said, in urban centers, police violence, just, you know, generic crimes. I mean, as you said, stats are showing that it's improved, but, you know, it's really not all that improved because, you know, populist has just grown in size. Russia is now a very relevant topic in today's world, and the average person is still kind of in the same place as he was before. We are surrounded by our materialistic things, mm -hmm. and the world is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and TV and, and the air is unfit to breathe. Climate Chain. Food is unfit to eat. Obesity problems in North America. I found that this is completely relevant. What he is bitching about right now is what any of us will bitch about in 2017. And I found that the most interesting takeaway from his speech here. That yeah. every single point he brought up is not just one or two that I could scratch off the list that we have improved on. We are in the exact same fucking place as we were 40 years ago. Yeah, we are. I mean, the wheel turns but and just comes right back around again. Yeah, so I found that the biggest takeaway out of the scene outside of Peter Finch's, you know, fantastic performance in this scene here. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. So we can see now that our Beale has had an immediate impact and you see uh, Max looking out on the street and people are, you know, screaming, I'm mad as hell and so on and so on. The Howard Beale show overnight jumped to a 42 share rating. Everybody's been watching. And then we got to Diana prepping for new shows in the fall season. This is kind of where it gets a little off track in my opinion. I want to get your, but we do meet Laureen Hobbs, that African-American woman. Mm. And this must be the most hilarious and badass intro to any side character in any in movie history because Diana introduces herself and then Hobbs goes my name is Laureen Hobbs I'm a badass commie nigger yeah yeah <laughs> 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 Literally, she says those exact words. Yeah. Not to be, you know, say the wrong bad N word. No, no, but you're that's just, you're just the line. Yeah, you're, you're not calling anybody anything. She, you're quoting the line, so that's okay. Yeah. But what did you? What first of all? What did you think of the introduction to this plot point? Now Diana's looking for something even more sensational, and mm -hmm. it's 
mm-hmm. this terrorist group, and we kind of touched upon it with the bank scene earlier. Right. Now, right. And also now you meet Lorene Hobbs here. And she doesn't really play too much of a part in the movie, but just this, this particular scene. She certainly makes the most of her limited screen time. Like, that was a hell of a line, and I thought it was great. Again, not, you know, use of certain words notwithstanding. It's not really for us to dive into here, but I thought she was really good. But again, I think you said that things start to go off the rails because this plot point, which, I mean, was started earlier. And we, I think this is sort of the first time we really picked that thread back up because she's basically talking about making a deal with these terrorists. To yeah, get... she is. Did you buy any of this? Like, this is where I think that maybe some people think this is, is definitely satirical, yeah. moving into yeah. satire territory because what the fuck is happening here? Right, exactly. And this is, this she's is where... She's staging a terrorist attack is what she's doing. Yeah, well, she's either, I mean, at worst, she's staging a terrorist attack. I mean, at best, she's just saying, well, you know, whatever you guys are going to do, if you could send us the tapes, that, that'd be great. But we know as they go on, they start to more actively develop what they're going to do. They talk about script approval and all that kind of stuff as they as they move forward. So again, really cynical. And this is, again, part of, does Diana really get that, you know, reality in TV? I mean, she seems to get stuff pretty tied up here. You know, does she get that there's, it's like she doesn't even, it doesn't even cross her mind that this isn't something she shouldn't be doing, you know, or she got no moral moral qualms about doing this at all. And I mean, that in itself is interesting, but that doesn't fit because I don't, I mean, that would be at home in a satire. You know, you could definitely see that, but that doesn't, it also doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story. So it doesn't really feel like it's got a place here. No, and I agree. But even though this is leading up to how the movie ends, well, that's, that's the get true. out of jail free card kind of thing. Yeah, how to wrap true. the movie up. This pretty much feels like this is the only way they could figure out how to end it. I found that kind of odd and bizarre. Mm. Let's let's move on. So now we're getting into the new format of the Howard Beale show. And I did enjoy this part because it reminded me of, of UHF. The new format of the Howard Beale show. It's like yeah. you get the tarot card lady. You get the law and order guy. You get the gossip lady about skeletons in the closet. And then the mad prophet himself, Howard Beale. What do you yeah. think of this new format of the show? This definitely seemed like something that would come out of an SNL skit here. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. And this is where they really start to lean into it. And I actually liked it. I love the fact that they had a tar- you know, tarot card reading psychic on the show. I thought that was very funny because then they're not paying any respect to reporting the news at all. It's all about, what do they call him? The truth, whatever, the angry prophet of the airwaves or something like that. Yeah, they call him the mad prophet. Of the mad prophet, yeah. right. So that was a great title. I mean, now we're not in any, we're not in the realm of reality at all anymore. So whatever, that's fine. But I thought the set was, great and that show could exist today like that could be on fox news that show Mm -hmm. right now and and it'd be normal yeah but i did enjoy this part because this is where i liked the satire yeah because this reminded me that it's kind of poking fun at what network programming is you know, it's like the early stages of, of a reality show. And, and I loved it. So of a bad reality show. So we cut to a scene now as profit and shares increasing at a quarterly meeting. Hackett's giving his projections to a shareholder. Howard Beale shows success is increasing cash flow, profit, and get our first brief glimpse of the Otis man himself, Arthur Jensen, played by Ned Beatty. And it's funny as he, I love this line because Hackett predicted earlier, he was saying, you know, I can guarantee you that all Arthur Jensen's going to say is if I can increase profit, He's just going to say, good work, Hackett, keep it up. And that's exactly what he says here. Good yep. work, Hackett, keep it up. <laughs> yep. Gives him a little yep. wink, and I loved it. I thought it was great. A great intro for Arthur Jensen. 
And then now we get to see the affair. This is where Ruddy dies. So I guess that the affair initially didn't stick. Then they may have just gone out on a date and they bump into each other here at Ruddy's funeral outside. You hardly even know that Ruddy died. It's just kind of odd. That was odd, yeah. Yeah, it's, it almost seems like this whole Ruddy character was almost like cut out of the movie in the editing room. But And she's just talking about work, 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 work. And then they want to start their affair. And then he tells her, his wife, I guess he tells his wife about the affair mm -hmm. and he wants to keep seeing her but why i mean here's one of the problems i have with the second half of this movie mm. is did you buy any of this relationship so the affair you mean yeah the affair between diana and max well i don't guess have to I... see how it ends like just how it ends just right when they're in knee deep in the relationship and how it kind of developed I didn't question its authenticity. So I guess in that sense, you could say I bought it, but I also didn't understand it. I struggled with it a little bit because the overall purpose of having the affair, it's not a huge stretch to see why this middle-aged man would want to have an affair with a beautiful younger woman. I mean, okay, that's, but, but this that's is a tale as old as time, right? right so but, Right, but now I believe that we skipped the sex scene. <laughs> not that we do this often, but let's talk. I think it's quite interesting. Let's yeah. talk about that sex scene. Sure, okay. Well, message Spock? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so they're having dinner at that. At the end, there they go back to their little cabin, and so she she's, is just talking about work, right? And it's There's getting nothing. her. She's getting hot talking about work, though. Like, yeah. I mean, it's she's dirty talking to herself, basically. Like, he's just along for the ride. Yeah, and it's a short ride. The, the shortest ride I can ever think of. Like, you know, yeah. it's just almost like I remember that Seinfeld episode with George Costanza, and it's like, I've got hand, I've got hand, and you know, you're gonna yeah. need it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what happened? Exactly. I had hand. What happened? I had a pump. What pump? <laughs> One pump. <laughs> it's like, what? I was surprised. I mean, obviously, they very purposefully made it over so quickly. Like, she's not, he wasn't even there, right? Like, he, it didn't matter. She was just there because he was there. She's getting off no matter but what she was getting off. off. She literally mounted and it done. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It was. <sighs> I don't know. I really, I don't really have words for it. I mean, it was surprising. I don't know if they were going for a shock value there or what. Did he even have time to get hard? No, you know, he wouldn't have. And in a funny story, so piece of trivia, William Holden was not happy with this role because of this scene. Uh, he was happy to be in the movie, nope. but I think one of his reservations of being in this movie was because of this scene. He thought it was very demeaning, and he didn't really say if it was demeaning to men or women, but I think more just the act of sex. Mm. So he found that this was portrayed just terribly, and this is what he has been quoted on saying, at least from what I've read. Did you find this kind of demeaning to women or men in any respect here, or that's just... No, I, I didn't find it demeaning. I mean, there wasn't anything demeaning to her. I mean, she was in control. The fact that she had an orgasm in, you know, 0 0.68 seconds didn't... That's, that's a, not demeaning is, to... Isn't that the time that Data said he thought about turning, yeah, turning yeah, bad to the Borg? He's yeah, like, that's <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks for grabbing that. I wasn't sure you were going to pluck that one out, but... No, for sure. I mean, and in all honesty, it was probably as long as data lasted when he had sex with Tashi R as well. I know he's fully functional, but I mean, he's an android. How long does he need to take? So that's Tashi <laughs> well, no, that, I thought that's more Odo because he can shape shift and to fill that gap. That's true. That's Kira skill. Was a petite, she was a petite lady too, Major Kira. So not after he, had, he was done with her. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I guess it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for, I think, is we've got to watch out for that one there, but you might never get a moment's sleep. 
it wasn't meaning. It was just surprising, but on purpose, I think. If anybody's demeaned there, it, it was Max, because, you know, there wasn't any love or tenderness or anything like I felt like he cared about her, but this is kind of where he realizes that he is a line in her script, and that's it. Not yet. So this is the funny thing. So I went out of order. So we see the sex scene first, like their dinner, then the sex scene. And then later we see the scene where he goes and tells his wife he's in love with her, and he wants to keep seeing her. And that's why I asked why. Did you buy any of this? Because I do not. Unless... It's just the fact that he's just so swept away that he's with a younger woman. I know he comes to his senses later, but mm-hmm. I just do not understand. And this is a problem I'm having with the second half of this movie. I feel that this is just filler because they've got William Holden in the movie. The movie's not about him, and they got to give him something to do. This character. Yeah, I can see where you're going there. Yeah, and I, You're thinking of the turn of events. You're right, because he just says he's basically he's in love with I get the impression that he felt like he was more addicted to her or addicted to the situation, you know, because he tells his wife, he's like, I can tell you I'm not going to see her anymore, but I know that's not true. So I think there were some good pieces of writing here and good performances here, but it does feel like it's sort of shoehorned. Like, they didn't need this scene. No, they don't. And let's just talk about the performance here. I love this scene only for one reason, and that was Beatrice Strait, who played Max's wife. And yeah. she did, I mentioned before in the trivia, she won an Oscar for this. Literally, this is the record for shortest amount of screen time to win an Oscar. She mm. was in the movie right? for less than five minutes, and she got an Oscar for it. And she got an Oscar, and then Ned Beatty got a nomination for hardly being in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of, I think, records still stand to this day. But I did enjoy the scene with the wife, and I loved how she said, I demand the minimum, I demand is the truth Mm. and respect and all this stuff, even if you're going to go ahead and do this, you want this winter romance or whatever she calls it. But then she pivot turns, and she goes, well, you know what? I'm not going to give up on you, Max. I'm going to kind of wait here for you, in a sense. And, And I found that kind of odd. And I'm wondering if this is kind of, is this realistic or again, like, is this, you know, a a miss on the writing where you have such a powerful woman with Diana and then you have the wife here who is initially upset, but then does a turncoat 10 seconds later and says, I'm waiting for you. Yeah. And I didn't like, no, I didn't like it. And is, and I guess I can bring it up now. The writing is, it feels overwritten. Like this is dialogue driven scenes which is fine. Like the dialogue, it's sharp, it's tight, and it's very well performed. You know, we talked about an actor's director and Sidney Lumet, really high quality actors and very tightly written dialogue. All of those things on their own, like they're all obviously good ingredients that you want in your film. But what you need more than all of those things is a cohesive whole. And it felt to me in scenes like this that it exists to showcase like so what a good writer I am, what a great performer William Holden is, and and what a great job Sidney Lumet did uh, getting that great performance and all of that. And that's, no, like it should further the story. Exactly. This storyline is not organic. It's no. thrown in there for the sake of throwing it in there. And this is where I come back to it and say, this is just feels like, you know, something written for Max because he had nothing else to do. Yeah, they could have cut it and it wouldn't have done anything negative. No. Like it wouldn't have taken away from the rest of the movie at all. No. And I almost feel the same way for the entire Max-Diana relationship as well. I, was yeah. gonna, I rather would have focused 
on a story just within the programming, the interpolitics, more that stuff more fleshed out. But you have to remember from a movie making standpoint, and writers know this, studios know this, I got, you know, Faye Dunaway. Like she did Bonnie and Clyde, you got Chinatown, you got the other movies that she's done, you got William Holden, of course, we've talked about on Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Even if other actor, prolific actors that have been in these roles, you need a romance in the movie. This is the 70s, you know, coming after the 60s, it's even the same thing today. There's a checklist when you make a movie. I got yeah. this, 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 and this, and this, and a romance is one of them, so I can get the people who are on dates to buy tickets for this movie. And I hadn't thought about it that way, and I think you're absolutely right. I guess if you're going to do it, like if you're like, we, you know, this, whatever, it's the studio or, you know, they're like, we want to get a studio picture made, we got to have a romance, then if you got to shoehorn it in, then I don't mind that this is how they shoehorn it in there because it's the cynical storyline. Like, it's not a warm and fuzzy romance. It's very cynical. It's very dark. Nobody's the good guy here. Everybody's a bad guy. So, yeah. But as we talked about, it didn't feel organic. And I No, it didn't. You're right. It could have gone. Yeah. It could have gone. And I think it should have gone. But let's move on. So Howard Beale now, and I don't know how he figures this out. So again, is he having visions that a Saudi Arabia company is buying up CCA, which is the conglomerate that owns UBS television station, and he's telling the audience on his show to protest and send letters to the White House so they can stop the deal. You know, we don't want foreigners buying our American companies. What the fuck is this about? So Hackett admits to others behind the scenes that they are knee-deep in loans to the Saudis and they need need this deal badly. And Hackett thinks he'll be fired by Arthur Jensen because now this is leaked out through the Howard Beale show. But surprisingly, Jensen wants to meet with Howard Beale. So the next day, this is the interesting scene here, and probably my favorite scene in the movie is between Jensen and Beale in the CCA boardroom. But Jeff, I'll give you the honor of describing what transpires here instead of me. You give me your thoughts. So this is the boardroom. This is the boardroom scene where we have Arthur Jensen talking to Howard Beale. What happens? What are your thoughts? Again, we kind of referenced it earlier where Jensen says, like, you did hear the voice of God, and this is how things have always been and this is how things will always be there's no people there's no there are no countries or no governments there are only corporations and there's currency equilibrium that needs to be struck money gets taken out of the country it has to be brought back in everything has to be made into balance and ned Beatty. I just want to say how much I love Ned Beatty. First of all, he's a terrific actor. What's happening? He'll, to me, will always be Otisburg. Yeah, I know. He'll always be Otisburg. Unfortunately for him, but to his credit, that was just such a great role. Such a great role, yeah. And this is my favorite scene in this movie. And I just want to like plug Ned Beatty, who was on one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Homicide Life on the Street. If anybody listening to this, if anybody's listening to this, go check out that TV show. Ned Beatty was in that for a few years. Speaking of great performances, this dead Beatty is basically bringing the word of God down to Jensen. Sorry, Jensen's bringing the word of God down to Howard Beale. And this is, I love how this was shot as well with the lighting. Yes, like he kind of yes. always looks up at Ned Beatty, right? Yes, because so it's not just that. He starts off bringing him in nice and politely, professionally. As him yeah. sit down at the head of the table, he goes to the other end. He immediately draws the curtains. And I love the long boardroom with those green lamps, like library lamps, or you'd see in an old traditional boardroom such as this. And that's all yeah. that's lighting the room, and it's very dark and ominous. And I love the camera angles that Lynette has here. This is the one instance in the movie, except for the beginning, when we were talking about the title cards and he was slowly going over all the office workings, the machine. Mm -hmm. The rest of the movie has been point and shoot. Yeah. Focus on the performance and the actors letting it breathe. But this is the first instance since the title cards that I noticed some 
interesting camera angles here, and it worked completely. It set the mood perfectly. As I said, it's dark and ominous. Jensen, he's been watching on the sidelines this whole time, and mm-hmm. you can see how smart he is. He knows exactly how to manipulate Howard Beale. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's the over-theatrical performance from Beatty, and Jensen's doing it on purpose because he has to be the devil to convince Howard Beale of what he's preaching because he knows Howard Beale must be a loon. And I love the speeches you talked about, the primal forces of nature, the in and out ebb and flow of the money. Foreign money, you know, goes out. Foreign money has to come back in. No people, no nations, just one system. It's corporations. The world is a business. And is he speaking the truth, Jeff, is my question to you, or is this part of the cynicism of the movie? What is your take? What's our boy P-Money talking about here? This is cynicism on his part. He's like, This is the voice of him saying, not in a good way, that this is the system, right? There's no democracy. Everything's, it's all phony. It's all an illusion. There's just one system of systems. And that's basically the flow of money, right? Globalization. So I think that's what he's saying. And it's not a good thing. Is that your that's obviously your interpretation of the scene. And I agree with you. Is that your take on the world as well, Jeff? What is your take here? Is well, he like, speaking what, the truth? What is he speaking from your perspective? From my perspective, he is partially speaking the truth. The world is highly globalized now, and a lot of reasons for that, right? As time goes forward, the world gets smaller, and a lot of that now is due to communication technology, internet, evolution of social media, 24-hour news cycle, so on and so forth. So the world's getting smaller and smaller and smaller because of all of those things. Globalization, the erosion of borders due to commerce is also a real thing. You know, things aren't necessarily made locally, like things are made internationally. I mean, China's a powerhouse of manufacturing. Products come out of there. Parts are made in different places of the world, assembled in other places in the world and sold in other places of the world. Like globalization is a real thing. Now, all of that being said, so that part's true. Like, I think that that part's true. And I agree with you. But then where Uh, Jensen leads into this is the dehumanization of society. Yeah. And I think that that is where I don't agree. I think that those systems actually promote greater democratization of these systems because just your average person, as you kind of go down the income line, participate in these systems and en masse. I mean, yeah, sure, lots of money flows higher up the chain to the elites, but I think that we see more, maybe not wealth, but more money tends to exist overall. Like production goes up, more people participate in these systems. I mean, poverty, there's been a a huge drop in global poverty over the last 20 years, a huge, huge reduction. But we can argue that till we're blue in the face. What's that, the Great Simpsons line? You can see, you can tell me all the stats you want. 30% of all people know that. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm saying is that, like, there's more access to food and basic services globally than ever before. I'm not saying everybody's living large, and that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that access to these things is greater, especially in nations that have traditionally been considered developing countries. So, Now, is everything run by the corporations? Well, yeah, I guess that's the case. I mean, sure, that's run by the corporations. I mean, look look who uh, we mentioned. Union Carbide, General Electric, Exxon. I mean, these are the power players 40 years ago. Yeah. They're the power players now, give or take a few extra people that he forgot to mention. GE and Exxon are very much global power players still. That's my point. 
for sure. The, yeah, the, no, the power sure. of players have not changed. It's the same system, the same circle of life that Jensen was talking about that P-Man or P-Diddy or Pad-Pad is talking about here. And I agree with, and I'm I'm with you that this is what he's talking about, but I disagree with you in the sense that I agree in the sense that you're saying there's more access, especially to developing countries, but those access has a system and has its own limitations. And money is made out of that. It's not for yep. the benefit of humanity. It's well, about it's not how for can the I of exactly? Well, then it's about making money. It, it is, but it, it I mean, is it the right thing for the wrong reason? That's okay. It's still the right thing. Well. I mean, lots of people who would argue, if we want to kind of go off on a tangent here, and what the fuck, it's our show, we know the hell we want. One of the benefits to living in a society that is largely driven by material wealth is that if you can make money by doing something that people want that will give them access to something that will improve your quality of life, and I make money off of that, and that's my that's my drive is to make money off of it, then who gives a shit? If something good comes of it, it's when people do things that are greedy that are to the active detriment of people. If you take a look at the financial crisis uh, 2008, when the financial derivatives market exploded the whole financial system, that's different because what they were doing there was they were taking money from people, not make, they weren't enriching anybody. They were only in lining their own pockets without sort of putting anything back into the system that would be good for anybody, right? If I, and I hear come you. up with... And I hear you. There are programs out there that do a lot of good, even though they're making money. That's your point, right? Because yeah. nothing is fucking free. Get right. it, 100%. And people are getting jobs out of it. They're getting paid out of it, even though there's nonprofit organizations. Hey, man, that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm sure there's profit being earned somewhere, even if it's through fucking tax breaks. That's how it's done. But... That's right. I still hold the value of what, you know, I'm coming from the, what is it, uh, the innocent lens, the hopeful lens of what humanity could be versus what it is. What Jensen is saying, this is what humanity is, Mr. Beale. This is the ebb and flow. This is nature. It's not about animals or people or nations. It's about money and moving money and dollars and business and corporations. But I want the world to not be that way. It can probably never be that way. This is me personally talking. Yeah, okay. I still hold that Star Trek value where, yeah. you know, Picard was talking about in First Contact, we got rid of the need for currency and materialistic yeah. wealth, yeah. where Roddenberry preached, there's no politics, there's no greed, and all the children shall know how to read. When that fucking happens, we've made it as a species. Until that right. point, we are fucking scum. And I'll quote that Italian chef from The Simpsons. Yeah, you see how you scum. I agree. I hold a lot of that hope as well, which I think comes from watching Star Trek, that hope in us. But don't forget that in Star Trek, the motivation, if you go back to, you know, Zephram Cochran's motivation for building the warp drive was to make money. Now, later he realizes what a great thing that he's done for humanity, but that's not what started him down that path. Yeah, but I think that was more just to relate. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but that was kind of retconning Cochrane just to so you could be relatable. They were retconning it, but I still think that that message is okay because a lot of the periods of human history where expansion happened, where we took another step, whether it was scientifically or technologically, in order to further social situations, a lot of that was due to commerce. You know, the Romans didn't build roads all over Europe and aqueducts and things like that for any kind of altruistic means. They did it for commerce. 
And if you want to call it greed, okay, that's fine. But, but that's fine. Still, but they're, they're a great society because they yeah, have these still, advances, but they're not yeah. the true, you know, no, geniuses. But it, I, I admire people like Galileo. No, but it was right? a step. Thing is, is that what I'm saying is this. Those steps allow society to advance to a point where people like Galileo can even exist. And instead of somebody like Galileo having to worry about clubbing a saber-toothed tiger so he can eat, uh, the system exists that he can look to the stars and see something more. So I get it. That, that's why I say is like the system. Yeah, that system is there, but I don't necessarily think that it's it's not perfect. And it's no, probably and, and it's not all bad. There's yeah. good that I get. I agree with you 100%. I'm just saying I just find it fucking uncanny that the exact problems we've had before and as spelled out in this movie are still the same fucking exact problems we have today. Yeah. It's like we haven't except for the advance of technology and social media. What have we done as a society in 40 years? I I think that we've progressed more than you think we have. And I think the reason why I think that, and you don't, again, I share the same hopes that that you do. I just think it's going to take, I, I accept that it's going to take us a long time to get there. And we may kill ourselves before we get there. We may ruin the whole planet and we may go extinct before we we're able to get there. And I think you want us to get there faster. And I just don't think it's... We've argued this before, 40 years, 100 years, couple hundred years, even though technology can advance quite quickly, humanity can advance that quickly in that small amount of time because there's generational tensions that will always exist and pass down generation to generation. That's one problem. Okay, let's move on because I don't think right. we are going to, I agree with you and disagree with you. Let's circle back to the movie Pat we were talking about. Yeah, let's go back to the movie. Patty C doesn't know what the fuck we're talking about. So let's, yeah. He's, he's dead. So that's yeah. okay. So now Mr. Beale starts preaching the ideologies of Arthur Jensen. He talks about the dehumanization of society and it's a depressing topic. He's no longer anti-establishment. He's pointing out the flaws of every single average viewer at home. Mm -hmm. And it's depressing and ratings are dipping. So Max, for some reason, finally gets frustrated with his life and his relationship with Diana. And this is six months of fucking that lasts less than a nanosecond. He couldn't figure this out before. But anyways, six months he's with Diana and he's frustrated finally. Did you find any of this? Again, we're going back to this relationship this is the ending scene of the relationship where they're having that conversation. He's telling Diana who she is mm -hmm. and why he's leaving. And he kind of describes it almost like a TV show. Our ending of a relationship is kind of like this is where, you know, the credits will start rolling. Oh, the commercial is going to come in here. He's exiting the door. No. What did you think of these scenes here? And let's talk about maybe William Holden and his performance in this movie and in this scene. Because I think this is really where he kind of... I don't know if he has any more scenes here after this. Right. This might be it for him. Yeah. And similar, I mean, as we've said, they could have cut the whole relationship from the movie. So, like, this is the type of scene that actors act for. Like, this is why they do what they do, right? To get a juicy scene with excellently written dialogue and, you know, a emotional interaction with another actor. And they get to really dig into some good lines, another great actor. And it's all so goddamn talky. Yeah. Nobody talks like this. No. Nobody and, converses this way, right? No, and this is where I was getting to the fact that there are a couple of scenes in the movie, and this is one of them where it's like yeah. that forced dialogue, stage play kind of thing. And I felt this was here too. It's yeah. very dramatic, and it's overdramatic. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah. it's not something that I particularly enjoy watching. This is like, 
How do uh, the Oscar committee is going to react to a scene like this? This is kind of what they're looking for. I'm going to throw it in here. The actors and actresses are going to just jump at the scene, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to get an Oscar. This feels forced. I 100% agree. It, it felt very stage play to me as well. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm definitely feeling exactly the same this scene and a, and a few others. I, don't, I mean, I don't want to like be too disparaging about it because, again, it's very well-crafted dialogue, but over-crafted. There really isn't any honesty or truth. There aren't two people going through this kind of heartbreaking situation. We have two actors expertly performing well-written dialogue. That's what the scene is, and it doesn't have any human resonance to me. And I agree. How about William Holden as a whole through the movie? We talked about Faye Dunaway. Yeah. We talked yeah. about Ned Beatty and a little bit on Duvall. How about Holden himself now? I mean, I thought he did a real good job. I don't think you can find fault with his performance here. He was really, really good. That being said, you know, did they yeah, did they need to overwrite a couple scenes just to give him something to do? I mean, it's certainly I mean you that's kind of what you brought up before. It certainly feels that way. Diana's m- movie not his. I mean, he's not all that relevant. It almost felt like this was adapted from a stage production. And considering both Lumet and Pad Pad came from stage plays and TV, this is not surprising at all. This is a logical step that this is how they would write it, and it's over-dramatized here. I don't know if this has ever been adapted for the stage. I think that scenes like this and, and the construction of this would work with this would probably work well on stage. I think so too. So they say goodbye. Their relationship is done. And now, you know, we that's the last we see of Max in the movie. And we cut to Hackett and Diana and others. And, you know, they want to fire Howard Beale and end the show because the ratings are dipping. But Arthur Jensen will not let Howard Beale off the air. So now it gets weird. And we've hinted at this and kind of talked about this. They now openly, along with others conspire to get the terrorist group, the Mao Zedong Hour, I guess this is the reality show that Christensen's been developing. They're going to get that terrorist group, Gil Howard Beale. They don't seem so shocked or uncomfortable talking about it at all. I think one guy says, we're talking about a capital crime, but, you know, fuck it. I think the next line was from Diana. Well, fuck it, he needs to die. Yeah. So we cut to the scene on the show for Howard Beale, and he gets assassinated, and this is pretty much the end of the movie. I love how nobody screams. The camera zooms in on Howard Beale. They replay it very slowly, and the TV station is lighting up commercials. It it cuts away to the control room, where you see kind of people working behind the scenes saying, Howard Beale just got shot, but I still have to get my ad in. Even as we're cutting Mm -hmm. away, we'll show some replays. I'm going to get some commercials. One of them is Canada Dry, by the way. I kind of laughed at it. Yeah. And they're focused in on that. It feels very Verhoeven in the way it was filmed. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yeah. I did enjoy that feeling. But what did you think of these scenes, the use of this terrorist group, and how it ended? That was going to be the first thing I was going to say. It was right out of a Paul Verhoeven film. But again, that would have good place in a satire. And because the movie isn't really that, Saturday. isn't really a satire, it's not really, right? It's a bit of a deus ex machina, isn't it? I mean, I know it's almost like they wrote the ending where they have to find these guys to assassinate him. And then they're like, well, and then they had to like, it's like you had to kind of go, go back and write the terror storyline into the movie so that it wouldn't feel like that's what it was at the end, even though it is, you know, like it's almost like cheated a little bit to go back and put these guys in there. How do they convince these guys to martyr themselves for the terrorist 
group. Are these two guys willing to martyr themselves for the cause of TV? Yeah, that's kind of weird, and they don't get into it. There's, yeah. Because, like, really, they only care about ratings, because that's who that Laureen Hobbs is kind of their agent. Yeah. But in order for them to keep going, they can't get arrested. So, essentially, they do martyr themselves. Even though I think yeah. they still say Ahmed Khan got away, who was the black guy. That's right. Yeah. But the other guy might have been caught, because there was two shooters. And, I mean, but and it just ends. But that's not the focus of the movie. They had to go to something even more sensational to end something sensational. Almost. Sure, yeah. From a thematic standpoint, that kind of hooks up, but it, I don't think it played. I thought the scene where they're discussing killing him, I thought that scene played well. Yeah, that scene played well, but the way the movie ended, it just felt... It, it felt it needed something more. Yeah. And I didn't really think it ended that smooth, but it was effective, I guess, in driving home the point. I just want to talk about that, driving home the point. Did you get that feeling right from the beginning of the movie, what this movie was about? And I don't think they really let up that theme about sensationalism. And I think where Patty and Numet were coming from, because they're coming from TV and working so long on TV, they must have also been feeling very cynical about the whole process because they know how the inner machine on TV is and the drive for rating and network share which is what this yeah. is about, and the inner politics behind it, and w- what is the mad science behind what gets on TV and what does not get on TV. Hey, it's a dog-eat-dog world. If something's not working, I've got to one-up the next thing, and then i got to one-up the next thing. The cycle never stops. Yeah. Because network yeah. share has to increase, and I think that's where they're coming. I guess that must be where they're coming from, because it is a very cynical look at the world of television at, at network. If this is how it was in the 70s, Jesus, these guys would be turning over in their grave right now, wouldn't they? I mean, TV back then, I mean, it's tame compared to today, you know? I, yeah, it, I know. So I don't know that I can agree with their cynicism from that time. I mean, that's their cynicism. They're going to have that viewpoint if that's their view. I would have preferred a more nuanced take because, yeah, nobody's under any illusions that the TV networks, their private businesses that are trying to turn a profit. I think it's a bit of a stretch to go from that to saying that the networks are, you know, if we go back to the whole globalization, there's no democracy, it's just the corporations. These corporations who own these TV networks, it's a construction of a fascist society, a fascist system where they, what they put on TV is what you see. So they're telling you what to see, what to think, what to feel and all of that. And if that's their view, then that's, you know, I guess I can understand that. I don't think that there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, Certainly not anymore. I don't think if there was back then, so be it. I mean, I general electric owned NBC for a long time. So maybe there's some truth to it, but I, I don't think that I don't see the state of entertainment as cynically as they must have to make a movie like this. Maybe. That's my take. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. But I can see if they were knee-deep in that machine for so long. And living in the 70s. Yeah, they were burned by it. And also the politics of the 60s and 70s and the state of the events, the political events and their lives in the 60s and 70s. I can see where they're coming from. So, yeah. Why don't we, we've talked, you know, quite a bit about the themes of this movie. Let's start wrapping things up here. Before you give your final recommendation on this movie, I'd like you to talk about the performances, the directing, and is this movie relatable and does it stand the test of time? And something we really don't talk about as well, you know, is it overrated or does it deserve the credit that time has given it okay all right i mean there's a few topics there if you answer it all that's great if not that's okay yeah so 
here's a pet peeve of mine. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with somebody, and whether it's about a you know movie, TV show, whatever piece of entertainment. This is what I think stupid people say is, oh, sometimes I just want a movie and I don't want to think. Or they'll watch a movie that at least has one centimeter of depth and be like, wow, that really makes you think. And that's fucking stupid people say that. That's a stupid thing to say. It has no meaning. What's great about this film is the depth of conversation that it almost forces you to have in order for it to have meaning. Like we have the benefit of coming onto the show here and picking apart every nuanced detail that's in here. That's what's so valuable about a film like this is it will spur this kind of discussion. Doesn't make it think it presents issues that make you question what you already think about and question your preconceived notions and, you know, open your eyes to certain, you know, to what you already hold inside you. So that's very valuable. Okay, so now that out of the way, let's talk about the movie here. So performances, I think overall, very, very good. Like I I mean, Ned Beatty was terrific in what is two scenes at speech was great. Peter Finch, not really in the movie all that much, even though, you know, Howard Beale's sort of the center of this hurricane. Faye Dunaway is certainly the standout here for me. I think overall, you got to say good, good performances. Uh, Writing-wise, I think it was overwritten. It's really tight. There isn't a word wasted, but again, like they can't just write great dialogue for the sake of it. You have a story that needs to be put together. I don't find there's enough narrative drive in this film, and I think that that is a fault of the writing and how the story is constructed. From a directorial standpoint, again, you said it yourself. It was point and shoot, except for that one scene in the boardroom. And I exactly felt the same thing. The whole movie, I'm like, there's no style. There's no presence of a filmmaker here. This is uh, somebody shooting a script and getting good actors and getting good performances, which he did. But I like a little more visual flavor in my movies. So, you know, I guess those are my feelings there. Now, if you want to talk about does it stand the test of time? Well, Again, we've talked about that. The wheel turns and keeps coming around to the same place. So the messages that are brought up here certainly stand the test of time. It's the same things that we are worrying about as we come to the end of the second decade of the 21st century. You know, the end of the 20th century is probably the end of the 18th century and the 15th century. I mean, humanity's problems, the struggle's real, bro. It's not much different. Human problems are human problems. And we, you know, sometimes we create new ones, but they're usually derivative of what's come before. So from that standpoint, yeah, what's in there stands the test of time. As a film, does the film itself stand the test of time? And is this an overrated movie? Does it deserve the accolades? Well, has just taking the movie top to bottom as one package, I definitely think it is overrated. I don't know that it deserves all of the accolades that it seems to have racked up over the years. So, you know, not, not getting into the recommendations or anything like that. That's, that's kind of how I feel there. Okay. I am pretty much 100% agree with you. I think this movie is relatable to today. Modern audiences probably would get, have a slightly hard time to get through this, but the topics, the themes are all relatable today. That was what fascinated me the most when I first watched it on TV. Performances are very good. They're very solid. Faye Dunaway yeah, is probably the most standout performance. She did deserve an Oscar because it was a progressive role, even though I think that because she played the same note over and over again, I didn't like the fact that there wasn't any other kind of range, but that's kind of the point of the filmmaker and the screenwriter. So that's fine. 
William Holden was just serviceable for me. Ned Beatty was the other standout performance. A piece of trivia, too. He only worked one day on this movie, and he got mm. an Oscar nomination for it. And he's quoted saying that, never turn down work. He, this is what he tells actors because of this. He worked one day. Like, you know, I think there were other people interested in the role, couldn't work it out. He was called. He came in. He got an Oscar nom for one day of work. So that's pretty fascinating, and he did a great job. Peter Finch had a very good scene, and I didn't like the rest of the way he played in the movie. So there are elements of this movie that I think are overrated. I agree with you. Mehmet was point and shoot, except for a couple of scenes. But that's okay because he got the performances out of the actors, as you mentioned, and that's kind of his MO. But I agree with you. I like a little bit more visual flair in a movie when I watch something. And that's why I think it's a bit modern audiences would have a harder time to sit through this, even though the film is relatable. And I still think it does stand the test of time. But I agree with you. It is slightly overrated. So, Jeff, how about we get into our final thoughts here? Do you recommend Network, and is it a rare antiquity? It's a tough one because, okay, I'll say this. I think the value of this film is more in the ability to spark important conversation like that we've had here. Like, So that's art. That's, that's art, yeah. So in that sense, like, can, do I recommend it? If you're willing to go down that road and have that conversation with, your friend, your spouse, uncle, or just yelling at us as we do the podcast, agree or disagree or whatever. As long, if you're willing to engage in that discourse, then yeah, if you're willing to do that, then this is probably a movie you got to go watch. So I'll recommend it in that context. Is it a rare antiquity? Well, I don't think that there's enough here from a film perspective, just taking it outside of uh, the importance of being a work of art. Is this film something that was what we consider rare antiquity? I, I mean, I painfully have to say no to that, I think, largely due to the overwritten nature of the dialogue, the story construction just not being what it should be. You know, we have an entire romantic subplot that was superfluous, could have gone. And like, there's too much wrong with it as, as a film. Gotta say no to the rare antiquity. So what's your hot take? I think anyone who enjoys film should watch this movie, 100%. There's enough in here to enjoy. Topics are still relevant today. We've got some good performances, and it's not a bad movie at all, it, even though we have talked about it's overrated. Is it a rare antiquity? Oh, boy. That is a fine line because this really, it's the topics here. It's not really about the film because you've mentioned it's about the discussion that comes out of it and what they're, the thematic points of this movie that the screenwriter and the director are trying to portray. But the problem is, as a whole, as a film, I agree with you. If the first act, the movie was as strong as the first act, 100%, it would be a rare antiquity. It's a middle-of-the-road recommendation, but it's not a rare antiquity because I hated the second half of this movie. The romantic subplot mm. was garbage. It's Attack of the Clones level garbage shit. Keep coming back to Attack of the Clones. <laughs> that, for some reason, that has become like the bottom barrel basement core marker that I'm measuring all of the crap to. It's kind of unfair to Attack of the Clones. It's not a... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not unfair to Attack of the Clones. At least not to the romantic subplot of Attack of the Clones. It's... Oh, touche. Touche. Yeah. You're right. So, okay, it is comparable. The romantic subplot is Padme, Anakin-level, grown-worthy crap. In fact, I would put this as even worse, because I didn't enjoy any of it. At least... Hard words right there. Well, at least what? I at least I got Natalie Portman in some you know hot outfits, and I got you know the sand line from Anakin that we can all make fun of. Don't forget the surfing cows and the sound of music fields. 
Yeah, I can let that go. But this was truly, truly off in this movie here. And the usage of the terrorist group, I get the cynicism and the joke, and maybe they were playing it for a satire, but then it's weird, totally. It doesn't mm-hmm. fit with the first half of the movie, and then even the filmmakers themselves say, hey, it's not a satire. And we have George Clooney telling me it is a satire. So, yeah. Is it? And then I think it even on, you know, when I do my research on the internet, people call it satirical drama. So, so there's a problem here. And yeah. that's because of the second half of the movie, the way it's laid out. I hated the second half, even though I liked how it resolved with Howard Beale's death. Cause I thought that was kind of just funny and it was mm. kind of an interesting take, but the lead up to it was not really that great. It's a mixed bag. I give it the recommendation mid-level. It's not a rare antiquity. I agree with And it is slightly overrated. Yeah. All right. Anyways, that does it for today's episode, episode 35, pretty much our two-year anniversary talking about network. Jeff, what is happening next time on the show? Episode 36. Yeah. So episode 36. So I know we're in late August as we record this, but I want to get us ready for the Halloween season. Stepping outside of my wheelhouse here for the next episode when we will take a dive into Wes Craven's new nightmare. Interesting. Okay. This is the kind of the satrical look at Freddy Krueger, I guess. In in a sense. Yeah, oh, this okay. is the this is the metafictional look at that. It's sort of the well, we can dig into it. Have you seen New yes. Nightmare? Yeah, I've seen this for yeah. a long time. Maybe been a decade since I've seen it. I saw it when it first came out, and haven't seen it since. But yeah, that'll kick off the Halloween holiday season and should be yeah, like I say, outside of I've been picking too much of inside my normal comfort zone. So all right, well, I'm, I'm gonna have to strike off Jaws: The Revenge as my next pick. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, have you seen that one? Jaws of Revenge, this time it's personal. I don't think I actually have seen that. Okay, that's, I'll scratch that down as a future episode. But it right. won't be next time. Okay. Okay. Anyways, thanks, Jeff, for coming today. It was a blast and a good yep. discussion. And I'll see you in episode 36. All right, man. Look forward to it. Cheers. Cheers.